morning, everyone. It is well with my soul. It is a very popular hymn, and it brings a lot of meaning. It's when, uh, I'm not sure if I even say his name right, but Horatio Spafford, I think his name is. Um, The background to the song is probably one that you've heard before, but when he lost his two-year-old son, first and foremost, and he was financially ruined by a fire, and then, last but not least, he lost four of his daughters when his uh, when a ship went down. So there was only him and his wife left, and that is when he penned that beautiful hymn. So it is with great joy again this morning that I stand before you, and I consider it an honor and a privilege to be able to proclaim the Word of God to you. I've been praying for our family this week. And I hope that each one of you can continue to live your lives before the throne of God, relying upon Him for your sustenance, your endurance, your hope, your perseverance, your comfort, and your assurance. And that is the glorious news of our Lord and Savior and His gospel. How it is not of ourselves, but it is of God. We are unable to manufacture any spiritual blessings that only God can provide. God is the one who carries us. He is the one who sustains us. And sometimes we fall into the self-righteousness trap where we start relying upon ourselves and start seeing Christianity maybe as just a bunch of rules to follow. And it starts dragging us down and soon we start feeling defeated. And it is in this time that we must remember that we cannot follow these rules. That's what the Bible tells us. Here are the rules. We can't, you can't follow these rules. That is why I sent my son to die for you. It is self-righteousness and the Bible actually condemns it. So we need to stop carrying that burden when Christ already carried it for us. And so often we fall into this trap of trying to take that back. But we have to remember that Christ fulfilled all things all requirements of the law, so we can fully rely on his righteousness instead of ours. And this is especially true in times of suffering. When we go through trials, when we go through tribulations, during these times, sometimes we have difficulty finding purpose in our suffering. It is during these times when we realize how hopeless we truly are without Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning. Your suffering has a purpose. God will be glorified through it. He will carry you. And as John Piper says, you are building up for yourselves a peculiar glory when we go through a time of suffering. And I hope this morning this will become true for us as well. I want to, when I am preaching, I want to start going through the book of Colossians. So this morning will be more of an introduction. So we'll spend quite a bit of time in the book of Acts. The book of Colossians is a very Christological, very um, Christocentric book, very much focused on who Christ is, what he has done, that he is the fullness of God, that he is preeminent over all rulers and principalities and authorities over the universe. That is who Christ is. It is kind of basically divided up into three basic themes. First and foremost, that the preeminence of Christ Christ is lifted up and exalted in the book of Colossians. And then Paul goes on 
to examine the false teachings that Epaphras has reported to him while Paul was in prison. And he goes on to refute these false teachings. And then thirdly, what does this now look like in the Christian life? If Christ is enough, and these false teachings are not to be added to Christ, then what does this look like now in our life? So those three basic themes are found in the book of Colossians. But when I was going back to start preparing for the introduction to Colossians, I one thing that really struck me was the suffering of Paul and Paul resp- Paul's response to it. Paul not only saw his suffering as ordained by God, but he saw his suffering with a purpose. And that purpose was ultimately to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the context that we should read, that we need to read these books, uh, the prison epistles that Paul wrote while he was in prison, the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That's the context that we should be looking at when we read these books, especially even when you look at Philippians, the joy that he exhorts the, the readers to have, understanding that it is in the context of great suffering that Paul wrote this. And even in Colossians, how he exalts Christ, understanding how Christ actually ordained his suffering. So I hope to show you how Christ ordains our suffering. And that is good news because that means we can also rely upon him. There are many notable events in the background and context leading up to the writing of Colossians. We have riots and we have mobs, imprisonments, beatings, attempt at bribery, murderous plots, audience with royalty. We have shipwrecks, miraculous healings, four epistles written, and the gospel shared at every opportunity. You'd think you'd be able to make a really good movie out of this. Paul suffered greatly during the time leading up to the writing of Colossians, but as the Lord told Paul in Acts 23.11, he says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me in Rome. So this leading up to his imprisonment in Rome. Paul's imprisonment in Rome was ordained by God in order that the glory of the gospel would go forth. God told him, you must proclaim the gospel for me in Rome. Not only in Jerusalem, but in Rome as well. Through Paul's suffering, people heard the gospel and they were given eternal life. Stand with me as we read Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 25. Remembering remembering in the sermon that this is the introduction to, to Colossians specifically, but also the introduction to the rest of the prison epistles as well. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And he, Paul is going to tell them now that he intends to, plan to, he intends to uh, travel to Jerusalem. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility 
and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, for I only may, for only if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I come before you and I ask God that you would be with us here this morning. I pray, Lord, that by your word, your spirit would move among us tonight, this morning. Help me, Lord, to share your word. Lord, I do not know what everyone here needs, what their needs are, what their deepest desires and longings are, God, but you do. I pray, Father, that, that your word would have something here for each one, that you prepare hearts, God, and that you would help me, Lord, to speak clearly and to be able to communicate your truths. Thank you, God, for your word, and I thank you for your mercy and your grace in time of suffering. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1675, in Bedford, England, John Bunyan was arrested for preaching without a license and was jailed for six months. Previous to that, he had actually already spent 12 years in prison, during which time he had written many books and pamphlets. Rather than seeing this re-imprisonment now as a tragedy, he saw it as an opportunity. He's reported to have said, I have been away from my writing for too long. He saw his prison as an office. It was during this second imprisonment that he wrote his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, perhaps the most famous book ever written in the English language. John Bunyan saw purpose in suffering, an opportunity in trials. So first I want to hopefully show you how God ordains our suffering and our trials for his greater good. During his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul had collected funds, funds to deliver to the poor Christians in Jerusalem who were also enduring a famine. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive... I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And we see in Acts chapter 24, verse 17, when Paul is making his defense before Felix the governor, that it was Paul's intent upon arriving in Jerusalem, that, this, that, that delivering these funds was Paul's intent when he arrived in Jerusalem back in chapter 21, when Paul says in Acts 24, 17, now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And there are also more verses, actually, that, that, uh, that speak about this, about Paul's intention of bringing these offerings, this gift, to the Jews from the Gentile Christians. And he was bringing the, these to the Jewish Christians. 
part of it was for the Paul was hoping Paul was hoping that it might help the Jewish Christians to fully accept the Gentile Christians as as Christian brothers. So Paul was journeying back to Jerusalem with these relief funds after his third missionary journey. As his journey back was just beginning, the Holy Spirit warned Paul about the suffering that was awaiting him there. Let's turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Not only that, but other believers prophesied not only that, but other believers prophesied that Paul would endure hardships in Acts 21, verses 8 to 11. So skip forward a couple, couple verses in Acts 21, eight to, starting at verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. Caesarea being a coastal town in the, in the uh, province of Judea. Caesarea was the capital city of Judea, which was a Roman province at the time. It was a beautiful coastal town in the Mediterranean Sea. So when they came to Caesarea, we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own ha- feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It is interesting to note here the prophecy from an actual Christian prophet in comparison with the false prophets we often see today and their constant prophecies of health and wealth, breakthrough, double portions, and whatever else they're always prophesying about. So as Christians, we can expect suffering. We can expect these hardships. Suffering is often ordained by God in order to sanctify us, the Bible says. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us that our sanctification is actually the will of God. And in order to fulfill the greater purposes of God, suffering is also given in order to spread the gospel. Paul understood this, and he wanted his purposes to align with God's purposes. He wanted what God wanted. And in this, Paul found joy. Take Philippians 1, verse 12 to 18. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So just take note again of what he says in verse 13. Or in verse uh, verse 12, actually. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this thing that has happened to him, is that he is sitting in prison. He has been falsely accused and he is sitting in prison. But that has served to advance the gospel. And that is where he finds joy and where he finds comfort. And verse 14, And most of the brothers become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, then I will rejoice. And just jumping down to verse 29 in Philippians chapter 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of, the, of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Again, it has been granted by God. It has ordained by God. 1 Peter 2.21 We also see God ordains our suffering. For to this you have been called. The suffering is a, is a calling we have because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And we clearly see in Acts 21.13 that Paul is sure his suffering will have a fulfilled purpose of advancing the gospel. Acts 21.13, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So we see that our suffering is ordained by God. Now let's also look at how there is a greater purpose in our suffering. Let's take up the narrative in Acts chapter 21, and we'll, we'll go through Acts chapters 21 all the way through chapter 28. So here in Acts 21, Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Paul was probably hoping the gift of relief funds, funds from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians would make them more eager to receive the Gentile Christians as full brothers in Christ. But when Paul arrived in Jerusalem... James and some of the other elders seemed more concerned about some of the rumors they had heard about Paul. Maybe it wasn't that they actually believed the rumors, but maybe they were concerned that there were other Jewish Christians who believed these rumors. So Paul, in Acts chapter 21, meets with James and the elders in verses 17 to 25. Some of the Jewish Christians obviously still thought they needed to keep some of the traditional Jewish ceremonial laws. And in verse 20, we read that they are still that these Jewish Christians were still zealous for the laws. They had heard that Paul was telling others to forsake Moses, not circumcised children, forsake Jewish customs. But we know from some of Paul's other letters that these rumors were obviously false. Paul, Paul clearly says, he became as those to whom he was preaching for the sake of the gospel in 1 Corinthians both in chapter 7 and chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 16, 3, he even had Timothy circumcised in order to avoid being a stumbling block to the Jews. So we see, obviously, that these rumors were false. They were taking Paul's teaching that salvation is of grace and through faith alone and were twisting them. I think, for some reason, that it just reminded me of Today, when people often will say, oh, you believe in once saved, always saved. So obviously that means that you believe you can just do whatever you want. You can keep on sinning and, and whatever. Well, no, that's not the case at all. That's not what people believe who believe in eternal security. And we should be careful how we represent other people. 
But in Paul's case, he just didn't believe these traditions saved anybody. But Paul was willing to follow the traditions for the sake of the gospel. Now James and the elders asked Paul, due to the rumors that they had heard about Paul throwing aside Jewish customs, to partake in a seven-day purification process in the temple. And they believed this would maybe keep the peace and hopefully strengthen Jewish and Gentile relationships as they knew a majority of Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. We can imagine Paul's disappointment that the relief funds the Gentiles had so graciously sent with him to the Jews seemed to be of no consequence to them. So Paul agreed to purify himself. And he agreed to keep the Jews happy. But things took a turn for the worse. What was meant to keep the Jews happy instead ended up causing a frenzied riot and Paul getting beat up. Verse 27 reads that when the seven days were almost complete, the seven days of the purification process of Paul in the temple were almost complete, someone recognized Paul and remembered seeing him with Trophimus, the Ephesian and the Gentile. And now they accused him of bringing this Gentile into the inner court of the temple, which was a very strict no-no. They stirred up the crowds into an uproar, and you can picture an angry mob approaching Paul. Maybe he's backing up, asking what's wrong, what's happening, what are you doing? Maybe starting to defend himself, but the crowd will have none of it. They just overwhelm him, they push him down, They grab him by his clothes, by his arms, by his feet, and they start dragging him out. Blows start raining down on him. They're kicking him. They're punching him, spitting on him, probably hitting them with whatever they can put their hands on him as he's desperately laying on the ground trying to protect himself as best he can. It created such a scene that the person who who ran and reported it to the Roman, Roman Tribune in verse 31, he said, All of Jerusalem is in an uproar. It's not just this one little area. He said all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. It created such a scene that it just seemed that there was such an upheaval throughout the whole city because of it. The Roman soldiers, they came running and they arrested the people who beat up Paul. Actually, they didn't. They arrested Paul. They arrested Paul. He's the guy getting beat up, and they came and arrested Paul. And he had to be carried because of the brutality of the attack, it says. But as he is about to be carried to the gospel, Paul asked to speak to the people. At the end of chapter 21, he asked to speak to the people. And boy, does he tie into them. He berates them. Tells them, what are you doing? Actually, he shares the gospel. He, Paul finds common ground in chapter 22. He speaks to them in their own Hebrew language. Also note how Paul asks for permission first in 21 verse 37. All throughout these chapters, as Paul shares the gospel over and over, Paul always is respectful. And often he asks for permission first before he speaks. His concern and love for the person is always at the forefront. And Paul understood that nobody is ever persuaded of anything with shouting or angry arguments. 
So in chapter 22, we have an account of Paul sharing the gospel to these people who had just beat him. What method did he use? How did he do that? He did it by sharing his testimony. He shared his experience. He said, I started off just like you. He didn't just try to theologically destroy them. He explained to them how Jesus had changed his life. He explained to them what Jesus had done for him. A testimony is a powerful way of sharing the gospel, asking someone, can I tell you about Jesus and what he has done for me? We see that is exactly what Paul does here. Can I say a word to you, he asks. Then he shares his testimony. And in verse 16, he also talks about the importance of repentance and washing away of sin. No sharing of gospel is ever complete without a call to repentance. Remember, Paul understood his, understood his coming suffering had greater purpose, that the gospel should go forth. He understood what that was what this suffering was all about. It was about the gospel. It was about an opportunity to share the gospel with others. And we see that in these chapters, at every opportunity, Paul is sharing the gospel. At the end of his testimony, Paul shares how the gospel needed to go forth to the Gentiles, and this again sends a crowd into a frenzy. Now the Romans, thinking they were missing the reason the crowd hated Paul so much, decided to beat Paul now to glean the truth from him. But Paul tells the Romans that he is a Roman citizen, and because of it, they decide not to beat him after all. Instead, in chapter 23, they asked the Sanhedrin Jewish council to come meet with Paul. And maybe for the Roman tribune, this will shed some light on the situation. You can just kind of tell how confused they are about what's going on here. When the Sanhedrin arrives, Paul sees that half of them are Sadducees, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So Paul talks about the resurrection which causes that meeting to become violent. This actually seems to be a brilliant display of the intellectual, a brilliant intellectual display on Paul's part. Not only does it cause the Pharisees, who were part of the Sanhedrin council, to take his side, but it showed the Romans how the Jews were becoming violent without Paul really doing anything. You can almost picture Paul turning to the Roman soldier, shrug his soldiers and shrug his shoulders and say, see, I told you. It's, it's, doesn't take anything to get these guys riled up. The soldiers again bring Paul back into the barracks. Now the Jews plotted to kill Paul. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son, hears about it and comes to tell Paul in the Roman, Roman tribune. The Romans protect Paul yet again, and this time they escort him with armed guard back to Caesarea. Caesarea, again, is the capital city of Judea a Roman province, and it is here where he received the prophecies of the coming imprisonment and affliction that he that awaited him. And here in this beautiful city, Paul unjustly spends the next two years in prison, seeking to be set free. There are some commentators, some who believe after Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians where he says he wasn't married, who actually make an argument that Paul maybe did get married later on after that. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't really have an opinion on it. But we know Paul had family. We know he had, his sister's son came, came to tell him. They obviously cared for him. They obviously loved him enough to tell him that 
there was a murderous plot against him. For two years, Paul sat, and to another two years after that in Rome, but for the first two years, Paul sat in prison in Caesarea. Not being able to see his family. I'm not sure if he had a wife or not, but he wasn't able to see his wife. For something that he had never done. There are no charges against him. In chapter 24 now, the high priest comes with some Jews, including a spokesperson or a lawyer, to accuse Paul before the governor Felix. And Paul makes his defense one more time by sharing the gospel. This time, Paul actually takes a different approach. He shares the gospel by pointing to the scriptures. He points to the gospel not as something new, but as something as old as time itself. It's always been there, he's saying. In the law and the prophets, right before your noses, right before your very eyes, the gospel is as old as the scriptures. And at the end of it, Felix found nothing wrong with Paul and almost seemed to be intrigued by Paul. In verses 24 and 25 in chapter 24, we see Paul having opportunity to share the gospel with Felix and his wife. Yet we also see corruption. In verse 26, in chapter 24, Felix is hoping for some bribe money to come his way because he desires the bribe money. He will often send for Paul over the next two years to talk with him, hoping that he would receive this money. This certainly hints strongly that Felix fully believed Paul to be innocent, but was greedy for selfish gain. And even after two years, we find that Felix decided to leave Paul in prison. Not because he felt Paul was guilty, but because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Imagine being Paul, knowing you are innocent, and knowing the person who keeps you in prison also knows your innocence. This understanding in the context, for much of the joy that Paul writes about, especially in Philippians, and just to think that Paul knows about this, yet he still exhorts his readers to have joy, and writes about the joy that he too has. Then we have Festus replacing Felix as governor in chapter 25. And Paul, not trusting that Festus would hand him over to the Jews, appeals to Caesar, who was, Caesar, uh, who was Nero at the time. During this time, King Agrippa II, who ruled, he was a, Jewish, he was a Jew, uh, Jewish king who ruled over some minor Gentile provinces within the Roman Empire, came to visit Festus. But since Paul had appealed to Caesar, his case was now out of the hands of Festus. But since Festus did not have any charges against Paul, even after two years being stuck in prison, he decided to give Paul an audience with the Jewish king, and hopefully this would shed some light, and hopefully he would be able to formulate some kind of official charge that he could send with Paul when he, when he stood before Caesar. In verse 23, we are told the king and his, sis, and his sister entered with great pomp. This presents a great contrast in how Paul must have entered. Two years in prison, thin from lack of nourishment, long hair, scraggly beard, old, dirty clothes, shuffling in between guards with chains on his hand and his feet. Here, Paul starts to complain bitterly about his situation. Actually, he doesn't again. doesn't even say he was tempted to. I probably would be. 
you know, my bed's a little bit hard. I'm getting a little bit tired of bread, butter, maybe some soup or something. It'd be nice. Something without some mice in it, maybe. But he doesn't even mention his situation. He knows there's a far more important matter at hand. The king must hear the gospel, and he does in chapter 26. Now Paul shares his testimony and points to the scriptures. In verse 22, he exclaims that not once has he gone outside what the scriptures have taught. He believes in the authority of scriptures. King Agrippa's response in verse 28 is often portrayed as though he were almost in tears and just barely, just barely missed an opportunity to be saved. But in reality, it was probably more of an arrogant response. If I am king, you think you could persuade me? Have you forgotten who I am? But Agrippa too does not find anything wrong with Paul. And in chapter 27, after two years of unjust imprisonment in Caesarea, Paul sets sail for Rome due to his appeal to Caesar. During the, the trip to Rome, they are shipwrecked and stranded for three months on the island of Malta, where in chapter 28, Paul is bitten by a venomous snake, yet somehow survives, where he heals the chief's father and others. And here too, Paul uses the opportunity of a shipwreck to advance the kingdom of God. No opportunity is wasted. Paul arrives finally in Rome. There he meets, meets Christian brothers who encourage him. And he's, what I, I found interesting, some of the names that were, that were in this area. Um, it says that he meets these Christian brothers in three taverns. I'm not totally sure if that was like a pub or something or if it was a city or what it was or like just a hotel or, or a, a restaurant or what it would have been. Maybe it was a, a town. But it, I just found interesting some of the names that were, that were mentioned here. And these Christian brothers whom he meets, they encourage him. And it's possible that these are the same Christians to whom Paul wrote the book of Romans approximately three years prior. After three days in Rome, Paul gathers together the local leaders of the Jews to defend himself yet again. And their response in verse 21 is, in chapter 28, verse 21, We have received no letters from the Jews in Judea, nor have any Jews who have traveled here from Judea spoken any evil against you. And I find that very interesting. Why not? Everything that has happened to Paul two years in prison, the murderous plots of Paul, or against Paul, of the Jews, and yet the people in Rome haven't heard anything about it? I think this response is telling. I think it certainly sounds like there have may have been only a few Jews of influence or behind the whole thing of keeping Paul in prison and trying to have him killed. It is such a hopeless case when those in power seek to condemn the powerless. The Jews meeting with Paul in Rome wish to hear more about what Paul has to say. And they set a date for a meeting. When the appointed day arrived, Paul again shares the gospel using the scriptures, teaching them that this sect that they accuse him to be a part of is nothing new, but again that it is as old as the scripture and time itself. The book of Acts closes with a sober statement. Sober for the Jews, 
yet a statement filled with hope and joy for the Gentiles. And Acts chapter 28, verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. When he quotes from the Old Testament, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. For two whole years, Paul remained in Rome under house arrest in prison. Not once was anyone able to formulate any charges against him. And remember, he was for, for two years, he was already in Caesarea in prison. Not once was anyone able to say, this is the crime he has committed. Yet Paul rejoiced in his suffering because he was able to spread the gospel. This suffering, which was ordained by God himself when he told Paul in Acts 23.11, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, now you must testify also in Rome. God didn't say, I really, really hope you will do this thing for me. No, he said, you must testify about me in Rome. It was ordained by God. Now the gospel was being proclaimed in Rome by Paul for two years. In verse 30 in chapter 28, he lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Does this mean Paul was always just happy-go-lucky? Is that what joy is? No, he often had great sorrow. But he found joy in his sorrow. Not because he found joy within himself or because he was able to manufacture some kind of joy within himself, but because he looked to Christ. His joy did not come from himself, but it came from Jesus. Paul had sorrow, yet he exhorted believers to have joy. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. For we do not want to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul had sorrow. Paul despaired. He suffered. He was afflicted. Yet through it all, he understood that it was to make him rely not upon himself, but upon God. 
And God will use suffering in order to bring us to him. It is in this setting, in this context, we find ourselves in the book of Colossians. During the two years in Rome, Paul wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. While he was in prison, Paul received a visitor from Colossae. His name was Epaphras. Epaphras brought a report to Paul. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, we read, Just as you learned, Paul is writing to the Philippians, or the, to the Colossians, Just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So it was Epaphras who came from Colossae and brought this report to Paul while he was in prison during this time. Although this report of the Colossians is partially good, he also brings a report about false teachings that were creeping into the church in chapter 2. It must have broken Paul's heart. This gospel he had suffered so much for, that he loved so much, was being compromised. Somebody within the church was starting to convince people that we needed to add something to the gospel. Colossians talks about traditions of men. Colossians talked about relying upon dreams and visions. Colossians talks about deceitful philosophies of men. And they were adding these things to the gospel. They were syncretizing them to the gospel. And Paul says in Colossians, we do not add anything to Christ. I have suffered this much for the cause of Christ. We do not add. I have proven by my life we do not need to add anything to the gospel of Christ. Of note is also that Tychicus seems to be the one who delivered the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon to the respective churches, which probably means that Paul also wrote those at least those three letters at the same time. And there are many similarities in those three letters. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. So he is sending Tychicus to the Ephesians. And then in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent to him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Remember who Onesimus was. He was a runaway slave of Philemon. And he says here, Onesimus is one of you. It's most probable that the letter to the Colossians went to the same church as the letter to Philemon did. It was probably one in the same church. The church in Colossians was probably the church that met in the house of Philemon. Especially in light of 4.17 when he says, Say to Archippus, See that you, have fulf- that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And we compare that to Philemon 1 and 2, where it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. These details help us in building a more, a bit of a background for the book of Colossians. And again, when we look at Paul's suffering, and we'll see how much he suffered for the sake of Christ and for the sake of advancing the gospel. And not only the afflictions and the beatings that he, that he endured, 
but being away from his family, being away from many people whom he loved. And not once was anybody throughout those whole four years able to formulate any charges against him. And we see with what earnest, with what earnesty in the book of Colossians, Paul tells them we do not need to add anything to Christ. It does not need anything added to it, the gospel. Paul was willing to suffer for it. He was willing to be ridiculed for it and to be killed for it. Paul is a, Paul's is a life that is truly transformed. In the first verse of Colossians, Paul writes that he is an apostle by the will of God. He understood that it was not only his role of apostle that was the will of God, but also that his suffering came with that role, and that also was the will of God. Have our lives been transformed like Paul's? Hugh Latimer was a Protestant bishop who was burned at the stake during the Reformation under the rule of Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. He was burned on October 16th in 1555 alongside his companion and friend, a man named Ridley. They were tied back to back to the burn stake in the early hours of the morning with wood piled all around them. A bag of gunpowder was tied around the neck of each man. As a fire was lit beneath them and it started to envelop them, Latimer shouted to his friend, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And that is how they met their Savior in glory. The Christian life is promised to be one that includes suffering. But the good news is that the Bible also promises rest for our weary souls in Matthew chapter 11 and a peace that the world cannot give in John 14. Has our life been radically changed through the gospel? Have we repented of our sins and looked to the cross for salvation? If so, can we with Paul find greater purpose in our suffering and find joy in that? Remember this context when we read the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you. Pray, God, that your word, your gospel, would become so clear in each one of our lives, in our minds, that we would understand it so clearly, Lord, that we would become so boldly, that we would become transformed by it, by the renewal of our minds, that your gospel would transform our lives, that your word would transform our lives, God. We need the gospel so desperately. We need you so desperately, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would also be able to, as those who have gone before, see Christ as nothing that needs to be added to, but Christ is preeminent in all things, and that we can rest assuredly upon him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.